Well, it's been almost a month, I think, since I finished this series. Uh, and so I'm going back over these last lessons to try and get them recorded again so that <clears throat> the content can be there for people to listen to. Sorry it's taken so long. Um, but it's been good, actually, to, to refresh and look at, at this again a second time after having done it, uh, like I said, probably a month ago. So if you've been following, um, last week we started a section that I called The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, talking about the three enemies of the Christian. And last uh, last time I recorded, we talked about the devil. And so this time we're going to talk about the world. <clears throat> and remember, I talked about these kind of different levels of enemies. We talked about the devil as the cosmic enemy. And so at this point, we're going to talk about the world. Now, there's a parable that I think really explains a lot about the world and what happens here. Uh, I wanted to read it. So here we go. It's in Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. That's a weed that looks like like wheat. And so these tares, uh, this weed, is growing up among the wheat. His men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. <clears throat> now, this is a parable about the world, what's happening in it. Um, but I'm not going to explain it to you just yet. We're going to come back to it. Okay. So like I told you, we're talking about the world this week and what the world is is the communal enemy. Remember, we talked about the devil, like I said, as the cosmic enemy. So the world is the communal enemy. There's these communities in which humans are engaged, and they're, they are uh, an enemy to us, and that community is called the world. Okay. So if, if you were to look at this level, what the Christian is a part of versus what their enemy is, at the communal level, we are a part of the church, and the world is our enemy. So the church and world are really the two opposing realities at this communal level. But we have to ask ourselves, what is the world, right? What is the world? <clears throat> okay, so John 3.16, right? Most famous verse in the Bible, most well-known, I should say, at least. John 3, verse 16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. <clears throat> so at this point, we're talking about God's great love for the world. And that seems to go against what I'm saying about them being an enemy, the world being an enemy of the Christian. And yet God loves it so deeply. So we'll have to wrestle with that. 
before we do, we can talk about this term world. I, I know I told you uh, earlier that terms really matter, names matter, and understanding the reality behind them helps us understand what it's talking about. So we'll talk about what the Hebrew and the Greek words are for world that we, we're finding. Okay, The, the word for, for land or earth in, um, in Hebrew, and it's used also for world, is Eretz. And Eretz is a pretty standard uh, Hebrew word for, for land. It's a very common word. It shows up in Genesis 1.10, for example, right? Genesis 1.10, we're talking about creation. Genesis 1.10. It says, you remember, God separates the waters and he gathers them. And when he gathers them... Uh, it, the dry land appears. And when that dry land appears, God names the dry land. And what he names it is earth. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth. And that word behind earth is Eretz. Okay, that's the Hebrew, one of the Hebrew words for the world. And at that level, Eretz, it's just talking about land, right? Earth, literally ground. It's ground we're standing on. <clears throat> um Another Hebrew word that stands behind it is tevel. It's the, it's the same idea, basically, world, land, continent. Uh, it's often used in the passages where it talks about the foundations of the world, like the, the land that supports it underneath the deep, right, underneath the waters. There's these land, this land, the foundations of land. Um, that's where tevel is, all, is often used. <clears throat> um, but the most common word, or the word that you've probably heard the most, is cosmos, right? Cosmos, the cosmos, as we use it in English. And, of course, in English, when we talk about the cosmos, we're talking about the universe, really. We're talking about, you know, all that is, all that is known. That's typically how we use the word cos- cosmos. Um, but in Greek, cosmos has uh, an interesting meaning. And, and we'll start with the Old Testament. Remember, I've told you that there is a translation of the Old Testament into Greek that uh, even the, the you know, writers and, and Jesus himself of, of the New Testament use. They quote it. So we know uh, the Septuagint is a translation that they have a lot of respect and trust in. It's probably what they were reading, right, in, in Greek. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And interestingly, the word cosmos does show up in the Old Testament. And so we have to look at some of these spots to understand what it means in the Old Testament. One of the places it shows up is in Genesis 2.1, really early on. Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. This is at the end of the first explanation of creation in chapter 1. We get to the beginning of chapter 2, and it's saying, yeah, the Lord created everything. The heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. Now, the question is, what I just read to you, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. Which word is cosmos standing behind? We're looking at all these English words. Which word is cosmos? And of course, most people would want to answer earth. It must be earth that is cosmos in the Greek. It's not. It is not. Interestingly, cosmos is the word for hosts. 
And hosts, of course, is referring to like armies, this angelic army. And, and it uses the word cosmos to talk about hosts, which is an odd thing. Cosmos, uh, I don't think I had mentioned this, is the word that shows up for world in John 3.16 in the New Testament, right? It's, it's this kind of, this word that's a very familiar New Testament word. But we're looking at the Old Testament to see what the background of what this word means and when it's used even earlier than the New Testament. Um, and in Genesis 2.1, Cosmos is is hosts. It's these armies. So that's an odd use of cosmos uh, when we think the translation in the New Testament is world, right? And in, in, in the Old Testament, we've got this translation that's armies. That's kind of strange. I'll give you some other strange ones. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verse 10. <clears throat> we go to Isaiah 61, verse 10 says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So then again, we're asking, what word here? is cosmos in the Septuagint. What word in the Greek translation is cosmos? It doesn't seem like there's anything related to world, anything related to this concept of the cosmos as we know it. What's the translation? The translation of cosmos in this passage is jewels. As a bride adorns herself with her Jewels. Okay. Odd. These are odd translations. Let me give you one more. Isaiah 3. <clears throat> Isaiah 3, verse 24. It says, now it will come about. Now in Isaiah 3, um, if you don't know the context, Isaiah 3, judgment is coming. Right? Judgment is coming to the people of Israel. <clears throat> and it's talked about what's going to happen to the the leaders of Israel and the prophets and all these people who are doing evil. And then it goes on to talk about the women of, of Judah and what's going to happen to them, the daughters of Zion, and what's going to be their judgment. And so here's what it says in verse 24. It's going to come about that instead of them wearing sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of wearing a belt, they will wear a rope. Instead of a well-set hair, they will have a plucked out scalp, right? They'll be balding. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth, and they will be branded instead of beauty, right? Instead of beauty, they will have this kind of slave-like appearance. They will probably be slaves is what is being implied here, right? <clears throat> so which word, again, the, the idea that cosmos is in this passage seems pretty weird, where would we find this cosmos that we've been talking about? World in John 3.16. Interestingly, here in 3.24, the word that English translates, uh, the, the word that is translated into English uh, from cosmos is well set. Instead of well set hair. It's well set. Again, 
these seem like strange translations. Okay, well, we've looked at three now. Genesis 2.1 had it as hosts, the armies. Isaiah 61.10 had it as jewels. And Isaiah 3.24 had it as well set. Well set. And here's what I'll tell you as I've, as I've thought through the connection between these terms. And um, again, let me tell you, this is speculative. This is not the result of intensive study. This is just my own speculation from the limited study I've done on this word and looking at it. But the thing I see connected with the concept is this. What connects the armies, the jewels, the well-set hair? What connects it is the idea of something that is well-ordered. And it's beautiful in its order. So when you think about jewels, they are these precious, beautiful um, adornments that have been crafted and created in a way that is beautiful, that is well-ordered. When it, you think about that well-set hair, literally it's just translating well-set. It, it's, it's maintained, it's groomed, it's orderly. It's beautiful. Genesis 2.1, what's one of the defining things about an army, right? A host. It's that they're ordered, right? They're ordered in battalions and brigades and, and all these different groupings. They've been well-ordered. They, they march in unison. It's an ordered machine, right? It, it's, it's, it's set well. And I think that is the background of what we come to cosmos in the New Testament, when we come to cosmos in the New Testament, it always is translated world. Always, consistently world in the New Testament. When it's such a, such a variety of translations in the Old Testament, it's consistently translated world in the New Testament. And I think it comes to stand for the world because primarily the thing that defines the world is the well-ordered, beautiful creation of God, right? What defines the world? Well, it's that God has ordered it. It is not chaotic and random and, and, and just ridiculous in, in its orientation. It is ordered. It is something that God created. I mean, when you read the account of Genesis 1, what's the point? God is ordering what he makes. He's making it beautiful. And so I think that's where this Old Testament term cosmos in the Septuagint that is translated so many different ways about things that are beautiful and well, well made comes to, to stand for the world in the New Testament, right? Cosmos, the world. Okay, let's go back to that parable. What, what does that parable mean, Matthew 13? So it's, it's talking about the world. I already spilled the beans on that. How is it talking about the world? What does that parable mean? Well, thankfully, we actually, if, if you read, you know, more than just a few verses, if you go down and, and continue to read in Matthew 13, Jesus gives us an authoritative interpretation of what that, that parable means, thankfully. Here's what he says. Verse 36 of Matthew 13 the disciples came to Jesus and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And Jesus said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And the field is the world, cosmos. 
And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. What is Jesus saying in this parable about the world? Well, what he's saying is that these wheat and tares are both growing up together. They're both growing up together. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil are both growing. And that's something we have to accept as a reality of this place until Jesus returns. Both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil... Uh, which would be the world, as we look at the communal level, they're, they're both active. They're both at work. They're both overlapping in some ways. They, they kind of intermingle in this field that is the world. But we know those two kingdoms are at war. Even though they overlap, they're at war. They are opposed to one another. So one way that cosmos is used in the New Testament is that way, like Matthew 13 uses it. And it is just simply the stage on which these two kingdoms are at war, right? The world is just the stage. It's the field in which these two kingdoms are at work, warring and fighting each other, okay? But that's not the only way that the New Testament uses it. But Matthew 13 is talking about that stage, the place where the battle happens. That's the world. The other spot, I think, tells us a a good indication of what the world is, is Romans 1. Okay, so go to Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, cosmos, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Who is the they? It's mankind. Mankind. For even though they knew God, mankind did not honor him as God or give thanks, but instead became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged God's glory for an image. Going on to verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. What is, is this saying about, you know, this, this passage is so full of just the wrath of God that's coming against the evil of the world. What's the point? Well, the point is that humankind has set up communities and systems which oppose God. And that's the other way the world is used in the New Testament. It's these systems and communities that have set themselves up to oppose God, 
right? And Romans 1 talks about that system. It's all these evil realities that we live in that we have ordered, and we've ordered them well. But how have we ordered them well? We've ordered them well in their ability to do evil, not in their ability to to do good. And so we've set up communities and systems that are based on opposing God. They're based on, on creating our own reality separate from him, on defining things for ourselves in opposition to him. That is what the world is. So those are the, really the two main ways that I think world is used when we think about the New Testament. It's used primarily in those two, two ways. It's the stage on which these two kingdoms are at war, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil. And it's also these well-ordered systems and communities made up of humans that are set up, these institutions set up to oppose God. So we have to ask, okay, if, if the church and the world are the opposing realities at this communal level... What is the church's relationship to the world? What way do they relate to each other? What, what's the connection between the church and the world? Okay, let's look at James 4.4. 4. James 4.4 4 says this. You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So fundamentally, there's a disconnect between the world and the church. Fundamentally, the church and the world are enemies. They're enemies. That's what it says. James is telling us that if you're a friend of the world... You're actively hostile to God. If you want to be a friend of the world, you are an enemy of God. And the world, there's no doubt that the world is enticing, that there are things that are good in it. And of course, James is talking about being a part of these systems and communities, choosing to, longing to be a part of them when they are actually in opposition to God. And so what James 4 is telling us is that fundamentally these these two realities cannot cannot coexist. They can they they cannot they're in complete contradistinction to each other, right? The church and the world at the most basic level are enemies in the communal level for us. Okay? Mark 10. Let's go to Mark 10. I think this adds another dimension to that. In Mark 10, Go to verse 42. Remember, this is a a moment when all the disciples are angry with James and John because they want to take the seats at Jesus' left and right, right? They want to be on his left and right in his glory. And so all of the rest of the the, uh, the apostles, they're, they're angry with John and James. <clears throat> and, and Jesus has a little lesson for them. In the midst of this, right, this this desire that James and John have to be preeminent among the disciples, Jesus has this to say to them in verse 42. Calling the disciples to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. 
but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says the world system is backwards. It's wrong. It is not the way of the kingdom of God. Mark 10 is telling us that not only are the church and the world enemies, they're actually completely opposite in orientation. They're the inverse of one another. Right? What does it look like if you're a part of the world? Well, the leaders of the world, they are domineering. They're destructive. They beat their lordship into the, the people beneath them. And what is the church? Of course, the church known as the upside-down kingdom. Who is the greatest in the church? It's the one who serves. The greatest among the kingdom of God is the one who's a servant of all. Jesus says, even me as the son of man, the greatest in the kingdom, didn't come to be served, but came to serve and to give up my life as a ransom. Not only are the church and the world enemies, Mark 10 adds in that they're, they're opposites. They can't even, they're, they're diametrically opposed to one another. They're the inverse of each other. So we have to, we have to wrestle with that. I mean, there's, there's no denying that the world is our enemy. And I have found that all too often that is the hard part for Christians to swallow. We serve a God of love, obviously. We serve a God who is uh, just and pure and good. But one of the things he, he makes clear in his word is that the world is our enemy. <clears throat> and we, we're going to have to wrestle with that. We have to wrestle with the fact that the world uh, has things in it. And it, it, it is full of things that are meant to destroy us, meant to uh, lead us away from God. And we have to be on guard. We have to be aware of that. Go to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. There's more to this story, though, right? There's more to the story of the connection between the church and the world. It's our enemy. It is the opposite of us. And at the same time, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly, formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We have to remember, not only is the world our enemy, but that we used to be a part of it. We were once part of it. Yes, the world is our enemy, but we understand the world because we used to be just like it. We came from the world. There's no escaping that reality that we all were once part of it. Romans 5. 
Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We have to remember that God loved us when we were still his enemies. Back when we were part of the world. If you're a Christian and you're listening to this, back when you were a part of the world, when you were in opposition to the church, when you were completely opposite in orientation, when you were an enemy of God, he loved you. So we let that be the attitude we have as Christians towards the world. It's not either or. It's not that there are enemies so we should hate them. No, of course Jesus leads in a better way. We love our enemies and pray for them, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Romans 5.10, God loved us when we were still enemies. So what do we do as Christians? We embrace his attitude towards the world. We love them even though they're enemies. We have to do a good job of balancing those things, which is that they, we have to recognize them for what they are, that they are truly enemy. They are truly an enemy. And at the same time, we embrace God's attitude towards his enemies. The one that is loving and kind and would die for us even when we were enemies. So that's the church's relationship to the world. We are fundamentally enemies, and yet we love our enemies. We love the world because the world is full, as Ephesians 2 said, it's full of people under the power of the devil. It is full of people who are under his power. And we love them and we pray that the strong man would be plundered, just like Jesus talked about. Okay. So what are the world's tactics? What are their tactics to as as an enemy to us? What are the tactics they use against us? Well, I think they're uh, a huge variety of different things they do. I'll list some from Scripture. 1 John 2. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, those things are not from the Father, they're from the world. So what are those things? Well, it's hard to know exactly what John is implying here, because, of course, we, we don't have a bunch of passages that use these terminologies. But I think most of them are pretty self-explanatory. Um, the lust of the flesh, I think, is is things that are pleasurable. The world offers us so much to be to 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 fulfill our our desires, to fulfill that good feeling, that that pleasurable feeling we all long for. The lust of the flesh, in my opinion, is those things that gratify 
that good feeling we all we all long for, right? It's it's not it's not that God doesn't want us to feel good or be happy or any of the things that are often used as arguments for why these things might be good. It's that we we have this unhealthy desire um, to always feel good. That when if we're down or we're feeling something uh, that isn't you know one hundred percent good, that somehow we we should work ourselves. Uh, in a way that we can always feel that. I just think that's that's kind of the absurdity of the world, right? The longing after that. Um, we always have to feel good. And of course, that fills all kinds of different addictive things, sex and alcohol, uh, drugs, anything that kind of gives you that false feel good, I think is is what that is referring to. That's the lust of the flesh. And the lust of the the eyes, I think, is is kind of just that that temptation piece, that covetousness, that that always wanting something more—it's it's the discontentedness of the world, right? That there's always something more to be had. It's the greed. It's the envy. It's it's the always needing more, right? That's of the world. Whereas the Lord is characterized by by gratitude and by contentedness, right? Paul says that he had learned the secret to being content in every situation. But the opposite of that is the grumbling spirit, the spirit that always someone else always has it better. I think that's the lust of the eyes. It's that envy, covet, uh, coveting part. And the boastful pride of life, of course, I think that's the most self-explanatory. It's that self-focused, self-centered arrogance, right? It, it, it is just the... The I am better, I am more important, I am what matters in life kind of mentality. All those things, all those things are not from the Father, they're from the world. Right? When we become consumed by these things, consumed by all the material reality around us, uh, the feelings or the, the, the material things or become too self-important, all of those things are are acting like the world. They're not like the Father. So 1 John 2 has that. It has lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. What else characterizes the world's tactics for us? Well, a pretty straightforward one is found in John 15. John 15, verses 18 to 20. This is during the... Um, upper room discourse, right? And it says this in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of it, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So the point is, hating and persecuting is another tactic of the world. That despising, that mocking, that's that's a tactic the world uses against Christians. That just venom it has for Christianity and for Christians. That's one of the world's tactics. And of course, the other is even more open. 
And that's persecution, which to me, persecution would actually be acting on that hate, right? It's it's killing Christians, uh, which is happening, you know, not in America, but all around the world uh, to Christians till today. Um, it's that killing, it's the maiming, the hurting, the physically aggressive. Uh, it's, it's those pieces, right? The persecution, it's the suffering piece, right? That's two of the world's tactics, is to hate and persecute Christians, to persecute the church. Okay, what's another example of the world's tactics? Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 1 to 7. I'll read it to you. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and said, Set him before them, and said, Truly I say to you, Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. What's another thing that the world offers? It's like Jesus says, woe to it because of its stumbling blocks. Another thing it does is it causes Christians to stumble. It causes the church to stumble. How does it do that? It offers endless temptations to evil. Endless temptations to do what you want to do instead of what God would want you to do. It offers up countless opportunities, countless moments in which uh, the definition of your Christian character will be shown, right? And and it's and it's looking. What it seems to imply in that passage in Matthew eighteen is it's looking to make you stumble. It wants you to stumble, and why? Because it's opposing community. It's it's opposed to us, right? Because it's an enemy. Uh, I'll give you one more tactic. Like I said, I'm sure there's countless more. I'll give you one more. This one's out of Romans 1.18. And I think this one is in a particular way insidious. And I think a lot of what the world is experiencing right now, I think a lot of what the, is going on, and particularly in America, I would say, uh, can be explained by this principle. I think it can be explained by what this passage has to say. <clears throat> and I don't think uh, people understand a lot of times what's going on right now, but I think this is the essence of what is going on. It's Romans 1, again, um, starting in verse 18. I'm not going to read the whole passage. We went through it earlier. And I've I've come back here several times. But I think this last part of it uh, helps us understand. I'm going to read it to you. Verse, we'll start in verse 28. Just as they, this is mankind, did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boasters, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, 
without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Wow, that is a laundry list worth of um, evil things that go on in the world, right? This is what the world is made up out of. But I think what's unique is at the end of this passage. And I think this explains what's going on in the world. It says people know what is good. They know the ordinance of God. But not only do they do the same evil things that were just listed, but they give approval to those who do them. Remember, we're talking about communities, right? This what What is being said in the scriptures here is not just that they're doing evil themselves, but they're actually approving of others who do it. What is that? What is that concept? Well, communally, what we talk about is honor and shame. Honor and shame are communal realities. And what they're doing here, and what they're talking about, is that they're honoring what is shameful. They are honoring what is shameful. And I would argue uh, that the other is just as prevalent, the vice versa, the opposite. They shame what is honorable. That is what explains the communal reality of what's happening, and I think, in America today. We are a society that is full-blown in honoring what is shameful and shaming what is honorable. We do both. And I think that is the essence of Twitter and social media. It's a group pile-on where we uh, find some evil, shameful thing and we all clap and applaud for it and we honor it. And we find things that are honorable and good and noble and we all pile on and hate it and despise it and speak evil against it. That's a communal reality. And as we talk about the world and church as communities, at the communal level, what's going on is this concept of honor and shame, which is totally foreign to most Western countries, in particular America. Uh, We don't understand this concept because we're particularly operate in terms of guilt and innocence. We tend to operate on that personal, judicial, uh, forensic level. We don't think much about communal reality. We're individualists at heart. But to the rest of the world, to uh, Asia and Africa and many other places in the world, Latin America, uh, honor and shame make a lot more sense. They, They are a lot more tangible realities for people. So to them, this isn't foreign. I think this is really the Western world's reckoning with honor and shame as a cultural concept. And I think that's exactly what has happened in social media. If you want to know why social media has become such a hellhole, I think this is this is it. We weren't prepared for the reality of honor and shame when it came to everyone being online. <clears throat> and I, And like I said, you can see it if you look through. Uh, any amount of stuff in, in online content that when we made global communities, honor and shame were inevitably going to come to bear because they're communal realities. It, honor is the community saying something is good and shame is the community saying something is bad, right? And and unfortunately, the reality of the world, as Romans 1 explains, is that the world honors what is shameful 
and they shame what is honorable. Okay, so there's some tactics we've talked about. We talked about lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. They hate and persecute Christians. The world is full of stumbling, stumbling blocks and temptations to do evil. And communally, they honor what is shameful and shame what is honorable. So then the last question, how do Christians respond to the world? How do they respond to the world? I'm going to give you three uh, different responses. Okay. And it relates kind of to three different ideas of, of what our response is doing. And of course, if we're talking about responding to the world in terms of how do we respond to the world in love, in, in, in terms of how do we get them to come be a part of this other community, how do we get them to leave the community of the world and become a part of our community? Um, we look at John 16 and 17. What John 16 and 17 have to say are that we have to be testifiers, right? I'm not going to go through whole, the whole chapters, um, though I did recently, if you'd like to, to listen to it. Um, the podcast earlier has us going through the Gospel of John. But John 16 and 17, this huge theme of testimony comes up, Right? The Spirit is coming, and He's going to testify to what He hears. And He's going to testify to the world about who Jesus is. And it says that we must testify with Him. We must testify with Him. And so, one response we have to the world is we testify about Jesus. Uh, we have the, the responsibility to uh, give our word about who Jesus is, about what he's done, and not just in a cosmic sense, not just in terms of, you know, Jesus has redeemed us and, and you know, he paid the price for sin by dying. He's given us new life by being raised to life again. All of that is true, and we should testify about that. But also, personally, we give our personal testimony. What is Jesus doing in our lives? And not just the moment of conversion, not just, you know, Jesus, I had this moment, and then I became a Christian. But what is he doing in our lives? What is he doing now? What is Jesus teaching you? What is he changing in you? What is he pointed to as an area, a flaw, a weakness, uh, something that is still of that belonging to the world attitude that still can pervade us? What's Jesus telling us about those things? That's testimony. It's testimony about the work of Christ, what he is doing, whether that's in a cosmic sense, in a personal sense, whatever that may be. We need to be about telling people what Jesus is doing. That's one response to the world. The second is this, and this is imperative. This is imperative. Romans 12. Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 9. This is a great... Uh, by the way, this is, a, this is the passage about what the church is like, or at least what it should be like. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our response to the world has to be one of overcoming evil with good. And that's hard. (laughs) That's the hard path. There are many people today who I think have decided that overcoming evil with evil is an easier path. It's a more straightforward path, and it's just it's going to happen quicker. <laughs> we can overcome evil with evil. <clears throat> it's, it's just an exertion of power. Here's the problem with overcoming evil with evil. You're still left with more evil. Inevitably, for people who overcome evil with evil, they always, always become what they hated. They always become what they hated because they never dealt with getting rid of the evil. It's easy to do, uh, to get rid of an evil by, by attacking it with more evil. It is the long game. It is the hard path to overcome evil with good. And I think in a lot of ways, this is one of the reasons why even Christians get tired of waiting uh, for God to do something because he's playing the long game. His primary way of operating with the world is to overcome evil with good, and that takes time. It takes an unbelievable amount of character to not return slander for slander or or violence for violence it takes uh, it takes the very spirit of god to become that type of person but there is no other way in which evil will be defeated it has to be defeated in the here and now by overcoming it with good and that is That is the path that the Lord has committed himself to. It is the primary way in which he operates with the world is to overcome evil with good. God could just blink out evil in a a second. And he would destroy all of us because all of us are part, or at least were part, of that world. And we always ask, why doesn't God just get rid of evil in a snap well because we'd all be gone with it none of us if God was to just judge evil none of us would have been saved he was committed 
committed to the path of overcoming evil with good. And Christians can never give up on that because there's no way to get rid of evil other than that. Only good can conquer evil. So that's another way we respond. We respond to the evil of the world with good. But in terms of personal response, in terms of personal response to what the world is trying to do to get us to to engage with it and to get us to be evil people, to get us to commit to its systems, how do we respond to those things? How do we respond to the temptations and the stumbling blocks? How do we respond to that? Here's what the Bible says, Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 26. I think this is a great verse. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Okay, go down to Matthew 18. We were here earlier. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. Then Jesus goes on to say this. This sounds very harsh. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. What we respond to the world's temptations with is to evaluate them evaluate them, weigh them, examine them, examine what it's offering. And those two passages show us that because they remind us to think about the weight, about the value of the eternal versus the momentary, versus the the temporary, versus the now. Those two passages remind us because it exactly what Jesus said what what could be worth your your soul what material could you add to your life that would be worth losing your soul and, and being cast into the eternal fire and then his harsh words about you know cutting off your arm or plucking out your eye what's the point you need to evaluate if the things that you are choosing to live in are worth the eternal glory that's coming, worth the the life that is to be had if we are perseverant, right? If, if, we, if we persevere to the end, it's going to be so much better than whatever the world could offer us right now. And so that is kind of the the key word in terms of how we respond to the words, the world's temptations, the world's offerings of evil, it's to evaluate. We have to think. We have to literally think of the value of the two things. Is this uh, affair worth what God is offering me? Right? Is this uh, is money? If I get more money by doing this, uh, you know, by 
whatever it is. I I, I ruin a, another employee's career and then I get a promotion. Is that worth it to get that money and know the evil that I've done and dishonor God? We have to look at the options and think about their value. They have to be compared, right? And that's one of the reasons we have to stay in the scriptures, because without them, uh, we won't know the value of things. We won't know the true value of of what God has to offer, of what he's telling us. And if you haven't lived uh, life as a Christian, uh, it's it's over time you, you see what God does for you. You see how much he has to offer. But if you're a Christian, the way to respond to the world is to evaluate what it offers you. And I think that's kind of that key word. Just like with the devil, we used resist or oppose. Um, That word is what the Bible tells us to respond to the devil. We are supposed to oppose him, stand firm, resist. We're supposed to fight against. When it comes to the world, we're we're given a different, um, different way to deal with the world. And the way we're told to deal with the world biblically is to evaluate what it offers, right? And and I think another reason that's important is because that doesn't mean that everything the world offers is bad, right? There are things in the world that are good, like I said, and we can evaluate if they are good even, right? So when it comes to the world, unlike the devil who we resist and oppose, when it comes to the world, we have to evaluate. The devil, it's not, you're never called to evaluate the devil, you have to fight against him. You stand against him. When it comes to the world, we're called to evaluate, examine, weigh, think about what we're being offered and whether it's worth it. All right? That's what I have for the world, okay, as our second enemy, our communal enemy. Uh, for the next, next session, we'll talk about the flesh, right, the individual enemy. And I will end this section of spiritual warfare.